Hello and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by G.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Civilization Reclaimed, African-Centered Thought. By the late 1980s, it was finally becoming impossible to pretend that hip-hop could be dismissed as a passing fad. This unique development in the history of Africana music had first emerged in New York City, particularly the Bronx, during the 1970s. By the mid-1980s, it had already given the world such popular acts as Curtis Blow, Run DMC, and LL Cool J. Rap continued to gain in popularity during the last years of the 1980s and the beginning of the 90s, a period that was also the heyday of what has been called Afrocentric rap. This designation is associated with, for example, the Native Tongues Collective, which included such genre-defining acts as the Jungle Brothers, De La Soul, A Tribe Called Quest, and Queen Latifah. Many of the major rappers of the era made songs about embracing African identity, like Big Daddy Kane's Word to the Motherland or Stetsasonic's Solidarity Anthem AFRICA. The group X-Clan stands out in the story of this time, their lyrics and fashion boldly proclaiming their commitment to valuing African roots. In their first music video, Heed the Word of the Brother, from 1989, one can see lead rapper Brother J wearing a particularly large version of a fashion staple at the time, the Africa Medallion, a pendant featuring an outline of Africa colored in red, black, and green hanging on a necklace. The logo for this podcast series on Africana philosophy is reminiscent of that fashion trend. This symbolic connection is appropriate, since it was a hallmark of rap during this time to name and quote figures like Malcolm X and other thinkers of the Africana tradition. Indeed, looking over the general history of American music, rap as an art form demonstrated during this time an almost unique capacity for the convergence of popular music with the intellectual tradition. Consider what we learn from another major rapper of the time, KRS-One, and his 1989 classic, aptly titled, You Must Learn. He decries a world where black children are not taught about luminaries like Benjamin Banneker, whom we discussed back in episode 35. Most instructive for our current purposes is a part of the song's third verse. Let me continue with Theodosius, a Greek ruler not known to most of us. He in the 4th century AD closed the Egyptian schools you see. KRS-One goes on to name Justinian as another ancient ruler who finished the job that Theodosius started, concluding, as a result, ignorance had swirled over Christian Europe and Greco-Roman worlds. How did it come to be that this American rapper felt it important to discuss the educational policies of Theodosius and Justinian, Roman emperors from the 4th and 6th centuries? KRS-One was drawing on George G. M. James's 1954 book, Stolen Legacy, which we first discussed in episode 123. George Granville Mona James was born in Guyana in 1893 and studied in Britain before getting his PhD from Columbia University, after which he began a career of teaching at historically black colleges, Livingston College in North Carolina, and then the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff. He died in 1956, two years after the publication of Stolen Legacy. There's much we do not know about his life at this point, but we're pretty sure that he was a Prince Hall Mason. One of the claims that James makes in Stolen Legacy is that ancient Egyptian thought was taken up and perpetuated by the ancient Greeks, even after Alexander the Great's conquest of Egypt, until Theodosius and then Justinian suppressed the Egyptian tradition in order to advance Christianity. It's clear that KRS-One, when writing his verse, had a particular passage from Stolen Legacy in mind. It reads, 
The Egyptian mysteries and the philosophical schools of Greece were closed by the Edicts of Theodosius in the 4th century AD and that of Justinian in the 6th century AD, i.e. 529. And as a consequence, intellectual darkness spread over Christian Europe and the Greco-Roman world for 10 centuries, during which time knowledge had disappeared. This example gives us a nice window into the phenomenon often referred to as Afrocentrism. Firstly, when people speak of Afrocentric thought, they could be talking about any number of ways of centering an African perspective in one's thought and research, but they're most often referring particularly to this kind of attempt to highlight the greatness of ancient Egypt as an African civilization. Secondly, it should be clear that there are often serious questions about whether so-called Afrocentrists distort historical facts in order to highlight this greatness. For example, is there really any credible way to argue that after the suppression of Egyptian thought by these two Roman emperors, knowledge disappeared? But these two points aside, there's a significant chronological question we should ask about what it means to call people like George G.M. James and KRS-One representatives of Afrocentric thought. It matters that the term is arguably anachronistic when applied to James, but not necessarily when applied to KRS-One. One of the key intellectual contributions preceding the Afrocentric era of hip-hop in the late 1980s and early 1990s is the publication in the year 1980 of the book Afrocentricity, The Theory of Social Change, by Malefi Asante. It was Asante who made the adjective Afrocentric popular, though he cannot be said to have invented it. For example, as we'll soon discuss, the African-American historian John Henrik Clark had already used the term in the 1970s to describe the approach to history pioneered by the Senegalese polymath Sheikh Anta Diop. But Asante introduced the term Afrocentric as a way of referring to his own theory, which is not called Afrocentrism but Afrocentricity, and which should be recognized as uniquely his own. It is thus helpful for telling the story of Africana philosophy in the 20th century to avoid vague uses of the word Afrocentric, and one way to do this is to count Asante's Afrocentricity as a specific intellectual development that belongs to a more general category that we can call African-centered thought. Asante himself constantly roots his Afrocentricity in a long history that precedes his work. On the first page of Afrocentricity, this theory of social change, he celebrates the theory as the foreseeable culmination of a lengthy tradition of Africana theorizing, writing, no longer are we looking whitely through a tunnel lit with the artificial beams of Europe. We are now able to experience the Afrocentricity that the great prophets Garvey, Du Bois, Fanon, Senghor, Muhammad, Malcolm, and Karenga had predicted for us. Of course, these prophets, who apparently prefigured the rise of Afrocentricity, often vehemently disagreed with each other. Think of the vicious feud between Garvey and Du Bois, Fanon's critique of Senghor's negritude, or Malcolm's break near the end of his life with Elijah Muhammad's Nation of Islam. This is not to say that Asante is confused. He goes on in the rest of the book to clarify how, in his view, each of these predecessors helped pave the way toward Afrocentricity. The problem for us is that the larger category we just introduced, African-centered thought, of which Afrocentricity is just one part, arguably fits thinkers going back as far as the coming into existence of any consciousness of being African among Africana thinkers. Consider, for example, the 16th century poet Juan Latino, discussed in the first episode of part two of our series. On the one hand, he was remarkably Eurocentric in outlook, as he composed poetry in Latin to celebrate the military victory of a coalition of Catholic European powers led by Spain over the Ottoman Empire at the Battle of Lepanto in 1571. On the other hand, we mentioned that in this poem, he included a response to the idea that his blackness made it inappropriate for him to perform this task. He mocked those in Europe who disliked his black face, 
reminding them that their white faces were not pleasing to the people of Africa who have black kings. If African-centered thought involves self-consciously attempting to dislodge the dominance of European habits of thinking by privileging ways of looking at the world through African eyes, then Juan Latino gives us an example of African-centered thought as far back as 1573. But a more immediately relevant milestone year for African-centered thought as it developed in the 20th century would be 1954, the year of publication for James's Stolen Legacy and also Sheikh Anta Diop's first book, Negro Nations and Cultures, in French, Nations Negres et Cultures. We first explored Diop's work long ago in episode 22, but the time has come for us to say more about his importance and influence as a thinker. He was born in Senegal in 1923 and studied a wide variety of disciplines in France, including, get ready for a lengthy list, mathematics, history, linguistics, chemistry, physics, archaeology, anthropology, and philosophy, which he studied with the famed French philosopher of science, Gaston Bachelard. In 1951, Diop, just like Franz Fanon around the very same time, submitted the work that would become his first book as a doctoral thesis, but suffered its rejection. He was not awarded his doctoral degree until 1960. In the meanwhile, though, he became a celebrated black intellectual. Aimé Césaire, in his Discourse on Colonialism, called Diop's rejected thesis, turned book, the most daring book yet written by a Negro and one which will, without question, play an important part in the awakening of Africa. Diop commanded attention at both the First Congress of Black Writers and Artists in Paris in 1956 and the Second Congress in Rome in 1958. When James Baldwin wrote about the First Congress, he claimed that only Césaire's culture and colonization met with a greater appreciation from conference participants than Geoff's paper on Africa's contributions and cultural perspectives. Baldwin also provides us with a telling illustration of the variance of perspectives in the Africana tradition, as he admitted to having been rather unimpressed by Geoff's paper. He summarized it as an attempt to identify the ancient Egyptian empire as part of the Negro past. Baldwin curtly reflected that, this question has never greatly exercised my mind, nor did Monsieur Diop succeed in doing so. If Diop was inaugurating a distinctive tradition of African-centered thought, Baldwin's ambivalence was an early sign of how controversial that tradition would be. Yet other African-Americans who learned of Diop's argument were much more impressed. In the United States, access to Diop's work was for a long time limited by lack of translation, but in 1974, the scholar and diplomat Mercer Cook translated parts of Negro Nations and Cultures, and another book of Jobs, in a volume entitled The African Origin of Civilization, Myth or Reality. In a preface he wrote for this volume, Job explained how essential it was in his view that his various methods of proving that ancient Egypt was a Negro civilization be taken seriously, writing, The history of Black Africa will remain suspended in air and cannot be written correctly until African historians dare to connect it with the history of Egypt. Job's influence in the United States increased greatly after the publication of this book, even though he spent very little time there. From 1960 until his death in 1986, he lived and worked in Senegal, running a research institute complete with a radiocarbon laboratory, and while Leopold Senghor was president, contesting his dominance in the country by organizing multiple political parties to challenge his rule. It's indicative of his impact on African-American intellectual life that, when Diop did visit the United States in 1985, the year before he died, he was received in Atlanta by the city's black mayor, Andrew Young, who proclaimed April 4th of that year, Dr. Sheikh Anta Diop Day. As we noted earlier, John Henry Clark was among the African-American thinkers who came to appreciate and trumpet the greatness of Sheikh Anta Diop. 
We've met him before as well, as when we pointed out that he collaborated with Malcolm X in the founding of the Organization of Afro-American Unity. When he died in 1998, the New York Times obituary included this point, demonstrating the kind of unique figure he was. Mr. Clark was a professor emeritus at Hunter College. If it is unusual to become a full-college professor without benefit of a high school diploma, let alone a PhD, nobody said Professor Clark wasn't an academic original. Indeed, Clark, who was born in Alabama in 1915 and also spent part of his youth in Georgia, had not made it past the eighth grade during his initial education. His development into a respected scholar and activist came as a result of his journeying up to Harlem in the 1930s and being mentored by Arturo Schomburg, the Afro-Puerto Rican intellectual whose monumental collection of books, artworks, and other artifacts of Black history eventually led to the creation of the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, part of the New York Public Library. Clark learned from Schomburg and others and became a respected educator in his own right, despite his lack of credentials. Among his achievements was his role in creating and leading the African Heritage Studies Association, an organization formed in protest of the predominantly white North American and insufficiently politicized character of the African Studies Association at the time, which was the late 1960s. Here is how Clark described the goals of the AHSA in a statement of the organization's ideological framework. The intent of the African Heritage Studies Association is to use African history to effect a world union of African people. This association of scholars of African descent is committed to the preservation, interpretation, and creative presentation of the historical and cultural heritage of African people, both on the ancestral soil of Africa and in diaspora in the Americas and throughout the world. It will be our function as scholar activists to put the components of our heritage together to weld an instrument of liberation. This conception of African history and its purpose should presumably be kept in mind when we come across Clark using the word Afrocentric in a piece on Job's contributions, published in an issue of the periodical Black World from 1975. Clark wrote, The books of Dr. Diop upset white scholars the world over and started a rage against him that has not abated. He challenged their interpretation of African history and backed his challenge with scholarship that they could not dismiss. Among the African writers using the French language, he launched the Afrocentric approach to history. By the time he wrote these words, Clark had helped to influence the rise of Black studies at predominantly white institutions, including the Africana Studies and Research Center at Cornell University. He was a mentor to James Turner, the founding director of the center, who can himself be credited with introducing the phrase Africana Studies to the world. This makes Turner, in important respects, a grandfather of the term we've been using to describe the topic of this podcast, Africana Philosophy. Clark not only taught at Cornell, but helped to bring it about that another self-educated historian of Africa taught there as well, Josef ben Jokunen. Mystery surrounds this latter figure. Ben Jokunen claimed to have been born in Ethiopia in 1918, the son of an Ethiopian Jewish father and a Puerto Rican mother with Jewish ancestry, but this has been questioned. It is generally accepted that, as he himself recounted, he spent his younger years in the Caribbean before arriving in Harlem in the 1940s, but controversy surrounds what educational qualifications, if any, he attained before and after this move. Nevertheless, to those who listened to his lectures and bought his books, he was simply Dr. Ben. After having made a name for himself as a public speaker and educator in Harlem in the 1960s, he began the 1970s by self-publishing a number of books that went on to become staples of collections of African-centered thought. One of his best-known works is Black Man of the Nile, originally published in 1970. He stated its purpose in the preface as an honest effort to present Africa's history, some aspects of it, 
from an African's or black man's point of view, an understanding of how a black man and his fellow black men or Africans see their mother continent, Africa, or Al-Kebulan. The emphasis here on the African point of view needs no further comment, but it is worth noting Ben Yochanan's use of Al-Kebulan as an alternative way of referring to Africa. One of the clearest signs of his intellectual influence is that others went on to use the term. Ben Yochanan claimed that this is the oldest name for the continent, and the only one of indigenous origin, as compared to Africa, a name which was given to this continent by the ancient Greeks and Romans. We know of no evidence that could substantiate his claim that Al-Kebulan is an older term than Africa, given that the latter goes back to antiquity, whereas the term that Ben Yochanan introduces is not found in any ancient text but at least it's not something he invented. Ben Yaukunen appears to have been drawing, directly or indirectly, on the work of André Deve, a French priest and explorer of the 16th century. The 12th chapter of Deve's Cosmographie Universelle of 1575 includes the claim that Ethiopians, among others, refer to Africa as Al-Kebulan. How Deve came to know this, and even who exactly counts as Ethiopians in this context, is rather mysterious, but this is the kind of idiosyncratic mix of information and interpretive creativity that one encounters in the work of Dr. Ben. The influence of his work is also uniquely exemplified in music. That Nigerian icon of cultural resistance, Fela Kuti, released a song in 1977 called Don't Worry About My Mouth, O, oh, in which he celebrates his ability to carry on the traditions of his ancestors rather than follow European ways. His primary example is using a chew stick rather than a toothbrush and toothpaste, hence the title of the song. Fela ends the song by imploring listeners to check out, go and read the book, The Black Man of the Nile, by Ben Y. Joe Cannon. His name comes up in hip-hop, too. The group Poor Righteous Teachers first emerged during the Afrocentric era in hip-hop, making their mark with a hit called Rock This Funky Joint. Their final album, released in 1996, featured a song called Word Is Life, on which the group's lead rapper, Wise Intelligent, proudly proclaims, We watch lectures by Sheikh Anta Diop, Henrik Clark nonstop. Dr. Ben gets props. And coincidentally or not, this unabashedly studious boast about watching recorded lectures comes right after Wise Intelligent assures us of his oral health by saying, Chew sticks, I chew. Mentioning the poor righteous teachers offers us an opportunity to clarify something about what may be called the religious currents of the time. Wise Intelligent begins his first verse on Word is Life, saying, Just like knowledge is infinite, I'm God, and I'm living. This indicates that he is part of the 5% nation, also known as the Nation of Gods and Earths, a movement that evolved out of the Nation of Islam. Not since describing Malcolm X's break with the organization have we devoted any sustained attention to the Nation of Islam, and we'll rectify that here. This is arguably a tangent, as it is possible to deny that the Nation of Islam, or the Nation of Gods and Earths, count as examples of African-centered thought. Nevertheless, the connections are close, as demonstrated by Wise Intelligent. So let's pick up the story of the Nation of Islam as of 1975, when Elijah Muhammad died and his son, Wallace Muhammad, became the new leader of the group. Very swiftly, he began changing the group in various ways, moving people away from the uniqueness of his father's teachings toward Orthodox Sunni Islam. Within a few years then, Wallace, or as he was later known, Warith Din Muhammad, brought to an end the Nation of Islam as it had previously existed. Eventually, he would call the non-separatist group he was leading the American Society of Muslims. 
But as you may know, there does still exist today a group known as the Nation of Islam, led by Minister Louis Farrakhan. How did this come to be? Once known as Louis X, Farrakhan had been mentored by Malcolm X. In the wake of Malcolm's break with Elijah Muhammad and his assassination, Farrakhan became the organization's most prominent minister. After Elijah Muhammad's death, Farrakhan accepted at first the new direction in which the deceased leader's son took the organization. But eventually he broke with Wallace and revived the Nation of Islam of old, continuing the work of Elijah Muhammad. This is how Farrakhan came to have a uniquely powerful position as a black nationalist leader in America during the 1980s, something that was in turn reflected in the hip-hop of the late 1980s and early 1990s. Consider, for example, Public Enemy's seminal 1988 album, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back. The album's first song, Bring the Noise, which opens with a vocal sample of Malcolm X from a recording of his Message to the Grassroots speech, features this lyric from Chuck D. Farrakhan's a prophet and I think you ought to listen to what he could say to you. Then on the album's second song, Don't Believe the Hype, Chuck D returns to the theme, calling himself the follower of Farrakhan and adding, don't tell me that you understand until you hear the man. Farrakhan's influence on hip-hop is, however, outstripped by that of the Five Percenters, who were likewise an offshoot of the original Nation of Islam. In 1964, the year that Malcolm made his final break with the nation, another former adherent struck out on his own as well. Born Clarence Smith in Virginia, he had become Clarence 13X in the Nation of Islam in Harlem. There are differing accounts of what caused his departure from the organization, but there was much continuity between his new way of thinking and the teachings of Elijah Muhammad. We can trace their innovation to a particular advanced lesson, first composed by that ultra-mysterious original founder of the movement, Master Fard Muhammad, who was said by Elijah Muhammad to be Allah in the flesh. According to the Lost Found Lesson, number 2, questions 14 to 16, 85% of the people are uncivilized and easily misled, 10% of are the bloodsuckers of the poor, who take advantage of the 85%, and then of course, there's the remaining 5%. They are the poor righteous teachers, who do not believe in the teachings of the 10%, and are all wise, and know who the living God is, and teach that the living God is the Son of Man, the Supreme Being, or the Black Man of Asia, and teach freedom, justice, and equality to all the human family of the planet Earth. This depiction of God as a black man in the advanced teachings of the Nation of Islam is the origin of the five percenter teaching that each black man is God. Leaving behind all versions of the name Clarence, the founder of the five percent nation became known as Father Allah, teaching black men to see themselves as gods and teaching also that the black woman is the earth. Father Allah was murdered in 1969, by whom is still unclear, but his ideas did not die with him. And we are, by the way, being careful here to say ideas and not religion. As five percenters are radically opposed to the idea of what they call, again following Master Fard Muhammad's words, a mystery god, they tend to insist on not referring to their belief system as a religion, preferring to call it a way of life or science. If adherents of the Nation of Islam have always been a small minority among African Americans generally, this is even more true for five percenters, although in their case that minority status is actually advertised in the name. Still, this science gained its greatest popularity in New York City at just the right time to deeply influence hip-hop. Many of the music's greatest practitioners have been five percenters, including the man many consider the greatest of all time, Rakim, or as he also calls himself, Rakim Allah, the God MC. A short list of other important five percenters in rap would have to include individual MCs like Big Daddy Kane and Busta Rhymes, 
as well as groups like Brand Nubian and Wu-Tang Clan. NASA's 1994 album, Illmatic, which alongside It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back is a contender for greatest album in hip-hop history, also shows the notable influence of Five Percenter ideas. The final figure active in the 1970s whom we will consider is Chancellor Williams, who greatly shaped African-centered thought with his 1971 book, The Destruction of Black Civilization. The book's introductory section, which he calls its preview, does much to help us understand the motivations and objectives of the rising trend of African-centered thought. Williams wrote the book when he was already in his 70s, but he begins by evoking his childhood in the South during the Jim Crow era, back at the very beginning of the 20th century. In a small town surrounded by cotton fields in South Carolina, a little black boy in the fifth grade began to harass his teachers, preachers, parents, and grandparents with questions which none seemed able to answer. How is it that white folks have everything and we have nothing? Slavery? How and why did we become their slaves in the first place? This early curiosity set him off on a lifelong journey of study, with one key inspiration being the Crisis, the NAACP journal edited by Du Bois. Having been encouraged by a teacher to become a sales agent for the periodical, he discovered in the back pages of The Crisis the titles of books that made him aware that Africa was the cradle of civilization. He found this exciting, but also perplexing. How had black people gone from once being the leading people on earth to occupy such a low and degraded position? Williams does not give his entire educational history in the preview, so we'll interject here to say that he went on to study at Howard University, obtaining a master's degree in history in 1935. He studied with the man who has been called the father of African studies, William Leo Hansberry, whom we briefly discussed in our episode on his niece, Lorraine Hansberry. As we noted, Hansberry was directly influenced by Du Bois, so alongside Williams's earlier reading of the crisis, we're again seeing the legacy of Du Bois's strong interest in African history. It also seems worth noting Williams's rather Du Boisian combination of interest both in history and sociology. He obtained a doctorate in sociology from the American University in 1949, and that same year became a faculty member in the history department at Howard. In the preview, rather than telling us about his teaching career, he tells us of his continued studies. He became a research fellow at Oxford University in 1953 as part of his effort to find out what Europe could teach him about Africa. Then, beginning in the mid-1950s, he embarked on an ambitious project of field studies in Africa, eventually visiting 26 countries on the continent. While maintaining that this type of research should be undertaken only after thoroughgoing research in written and other documentary sources, he nevertheless emphasized the investigation of oral history as being of the highest importance in the effort to understand African history. A book called The Destruction of Black Civilization, Great Issues of a Race from 4500 BC to 2000 AD, was the ultimate fruit of all this time and study. Williams had intended to produce a two-volume history of African people, but he began to lose his eyesight and thus felt the urgency of summarizing in one volume all that he had learned as he sought to answer the questions with which he had pestered adults when he was a child. The story of decline that he tells in the book is, to say the least, quite idiosyncratic in relation to most scholarship on African history. After what he calls the golden age in the history of the blacks, which he identifies with the old kingdom of ancient Egypt, he takes the destruction of black civilization to have been the result in large part of repeated white invasions. Given the ancient period he has in mind here, he's not using white invasions to refer to modern European imperialism, but rather initially to incursions by those generally referred to in the study of ancient Egypt as Asiatics coming from Palestine. The ongoing progress of these incursions ultimately resulted in the change from an all-black Egypt 
to an all-white Egypt. He firmly rejects the fascination with Islam we see among many African Americans, with the influence of the nation of Islam and the five percenters, as distant as those traditions may be from Sunni orthodoxy. Instead, Williams came to view the Asian imperialism of Arabs as even more devastating for the African people than that of either Europe or America. After the final conquest by Arabs of the original center of black civilization came, according to Williams, long periods of wandering all over the continent. This is what explains the loss of writing by the people who invented it, and the splintering of the black race from an original unity into countless little independent societies and chiefdoms. The 10th to the 19th centuries, in his account, saw the re-emergence of black kingdoms and empires in various parts of the continent, but these eventually fell to Islamic and then European Christian imperialism. Writing after the attainment of political independence by the various countries of Africa, Williams took his people to be at a crossroads. Could they achieve the unity they once had and truly throw off the yoke of white subjugators once and for all? To see how this sort of African-centered thought looks to its critics, let's turn to the treatment of Williams in Stephen Howe's 1998 book, Afrocentrism, Mythical Paths, and Imagined Homes. Howe, a British historian, was concerned in his book to combat what he took to be a persistent betrayal of the standards of truth essential to good historical research among so-called Afrocentrists. When turning to Williams, Howe admits that his dedication to the task of recovering African history cannot be doubted. This dedication, according to Howe, was obvious as early as Williams' doctoral research on African-American religion and is exemplified in a book that Williams published in 1961, before the destruction of black civilization, called The Rebirth of African Civilization. The titles suggest a close connection between the two books, yet Howe nevertheless argues that the books should be seen as extremely different. He writes, Williams's first major book, The Rebirth of African Civilization, mainly a study of social mores and educational change in Ghana during its transition to independence, was based on substantial fieldwork and was a serious, if neglected, contribution to the 1960s debate on Africa's future, despite its idiosyncratic forays into comparative ethics and moral exhortation. By contrast, Howe describes the destruction of black civilization as thoroughly fantastic and entirely fanciful story and sheer fantasy. For a more nuanced critical approach to the book, we may turn to Tanahasi Coates, whose 2015 book, Between the World and Me, established him as one of the most important public commentators on issues of race and black identity in our present day era, which is characterized most famously by the use of the slogan, Black Lives Matter. Written as a letter to his son, Samori, the book is to a significant degree a set of autobiographical reflections, including reflections on Coates' time as a student at Howard University in the mid-1990s. Like so many young people of the time, he was greatly influenced by the surge in popularity of African-centered thought found in rap and other aspects of black life in America. There was also in his case a rather direct lineage connecting him to this tradition. Paul Coates, his father, was the founder of Black Classic Press, a black publishing company that did much to make the works of major figures of African-centered thought widely available. The most notable case would be Benyokunum, as we noted earlier, his books were initially self-published, and it was Black Classic Press that made them more widely available in the 1980s and 1990s. In Between the World and Me, Paul's son, Ta-Nehisi, tells us that by the time he arrived at Howard, Chancellor Williams's The Destruction of Black Civilization was my Bible. Among the parts of the book that meant the most to him was a section on Queen Nzinga, the 17th century ruler in what is now Angola, who famously resisted the Portuguese. 
Williams spoke of her as Queen Nzinga the Unconquerable, and Coates writes of the impact of learning how she once responded to the attempted humiliation of being denied a seat during negotiations for peace by ordering one of her attendants to get down on all fours to make a human chair. Coates recalls, This was the kind of power I sought, and the story of our own royalty became for me a weapon. Under the influence of Williams, Coates was led to view his people as kings in exile, a nation of original men severed from our original names and our majestic Nubian culture. But Coates's very investment in African history proved to be the source of the undoing of his devotion to Williams because taking courses from the history department at Howard forced him to confront a series of critical questions. He represents this as a sort of Socratic exchange. Did black skin really convey nobility? Always? Yes. What about the blacks who'd practiced slavery for millennia and sold slaves across the Sahara and then across the sea? Victims of a trick. Would those be the same black kings who birthed all of civilization? Were they then both deposed masters of the galaxy and gullible puppets all at once? And what did I mean by black? You know, black. Did I think this a timeless category stretching into the deep past? Yes. Could it be supposed that simply because color was important to me, it had always been so? One professor of his, Linda Haywood, had a particularly strong influence on his turning away from what he came to see as romanticization of Africa. Coates writes, When she told the story of Nzinga conducting negotiations upon the woman's back, she told it without any fantastic gloss, and it hit me hard as a sucker punch. Rather than identifying with royalty, this time Coates identified with the human being broken down into a chair so that a queen could sit. One issue hinted at by Coates that we have not sufficiently addressed in our story of African-centered thought in this episode is the significance of gender in the tradition. We will, however, have more to say on this as we discuss other representatives of African-centered thought in the 1980s in our next episode. Taking the central stage will be the aforementioned Molefi Asante, his embrace of the term Afrocentricity, and the question of what he meant by it. Following the lead of Chancellor Williams, that's just to give you a preview to what's coming next here on The History of Africana Philosophy. <music>